The Emergency Medical Minute is excited to announce that we are now offering AMA, PRA, Category 1 credits. This is accessible through our online course modules that can be accessed at www.emergencymedicalminute.org backslash CME-courses or simply by clicking on the link in our show notes and creating an account. All right, welcome back for another episode of On the Streets. I'm your host, Jordan Orada, and with me is Dr. Kwan. Thank you so much for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself quickly before we jump into a little case study. Okay, thanks, Jordan. Happy to be here. I'm Glenda Kwan. I'm one of the trauma surgeons at Swedish Medical Center. I've been practicing there for about 12 years. And I'm the associate program director for the general surgery residency program. So we do a lot of resident education, and I'm happy to be here today. Awesome. Thank you so much. So the reason that we have you in the studio today is I came across this really fascinating x-ray that showed what looks like an IO needle going all the way through a tibia, out the back, and I can only imagine that caused some problems. And this is a patient that you received and treated, and we'll just start with the case. Tell us a little bit about it, and then we'll talk about some of the pitfalls of IO and what we need to do to repair that, remedy that. Okay, yeah. So this was a uh, 60-year-old man who was transferred from a facility that was out of state. He was an unrestrained driver, and he was involved in a motor vehicle collision with a semi-truck. EMS reported a prolonged extrication, which lasted approximately 40 minutes. He was taken to the transferring facility, noted to have significant uh, multi-trauma, and then was transferred to Swedish Medical Center for definitive management. They had some trouble getting a peripheral IV in the gentleman, and so uh, appropriately, he got a proximal tibial IO in his right tibia. And during transport on route, he was known to have some hypotension, and they presumed that this was a result of hypovolemic shock. And so he received two units of packed blood cells and also about 1,500 cc's of uh, crystalloid fluid all through this IO. When the patient arrived, he was awake and oriented and was able to communicate to us, and he on examination, we noted that he had motor deficits in the right lower extremity. And the patient was able to relate that at the time of the accident, he was able to move his leg. And then sometime in route, he felt that he had numbness in the leg and also uh, inability to move that leg. And so that was a change, and that occurred in route. Spoiler alert, I have a feeling that, that maybe the intervention had something to do with the change in his sensation. Well, that's true. And But the guy also had multi-trauma. And so at that time, when he first arrived, we didn't know what all of his injuries were. And so we were concerned about spinal cord injury. We were concerned about fractures and other reasons that he could have motor or sensory deficits in the lower extremity. So it turns out that most of his injuries were left-sided. So he had rib fractures, he had a spleen injury, a humerus fracture, a hip fracture on the left, multiple fractures of the foot on the um, right side. And again, this was a right tibial IO. And then on examination, we noted that his calf was quite edematous, quite swollen compared to the left side very tense. And again, he had difficulty dorsiflexing and plantar flexing that foot. And he really had no sensation uh, below the level of the knee. And so that was pretty concerned. We noted that the IO was there. We were uh, immediately concerned that perhaps it was not in the right medullary space. And so we were concerned about compartment syndrome and that perhaps that had developed en route with the infusion of blood and fluids. And so how long was he in the department before you determined that you needed to do something about that to change it, remove it, assess it. I'm sure that, so first of all, the crew did a good job of putting it in the right leg where there was less injury, right? Yeah. Again, that's a, one of the tenets of putting in IOs is 
uh, not to put it in an extremity where you suspect that there could be a fracture. So they picked the right extremity. And in a flight with a critical trauma patient, you know, obviously the, the manufacturer says to frequently assess and reassess and the site, the infusion, obviously that can get overlooked at times. Fortunately, the referring center, the receiving center always goes through all those things. And when something isn't right, they identify it. Yeah. So we noted it on the secondary examination that he definitely had deficits in that leg. We were concerned about compartment syndrome. We actually got out the striker. We measured his compartments, his anterior and the lateral compartments. And the pressures were in the high 20s. And we the next step was that we removed the IO and he instantly felt better. Actually, his sensation improved immediately, but his leg was still pretty swollen and we were still concerned about the possibility of development of compartment syndrome. So before we go into the compartment syndrome piece, mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about the IO. So there's three different needle sizes, right? You got the pediatric, which is 15 millimeter, adult, which is 25 millimeter, and then the humeral or larger oversized, which is 45, so a pretty big jump. Yes. And I'm going to guess, just following my gut, that this was the larger humeral, the the yellow hub one. Is that accurate? Yeah, it was a 45 millimeter needle. And we know this because we could measure it on the x-ray. And it was, in fact, a 45. And on the x-ray, which we'll post on the podcast site, the needle goes through and through the tibia and is the tip of it is in the deep posterior compartment. And did it seem like it was placed properly in the tibial plateau at the right angle, or would maybe the angle got off a little bit and helped it kind of go through? Because also, this, these should not be hubbed generally, right, until the resistance stops is the proper technique? Right. So uh, there are markings on the needle. You're supposed to insert the needle through the soft tissue. When it hits the bone, you should still see markings on the needle before you drill into the bone so that you know that you're not going too deep and perhaps going through and through. Again, it's hard on these films because it's an AP and lateral film. It's not three-dimensional. It's kind of hard to know exactly what the angle of the needle was, but I suspect that it wasn't square with the, the face of the tibia, and it may have sort of skived through and through. And again, it may have been just a, a needle size that was a little bit too big for this patient. And and I think that's just such a great note is when you do have to use those big ones, which a lot of our patients require those yeah. longer ones, to make note of those those black bands on the stainless steel shaft and take your time before you go all the way through to make sure you're in the right space and, and do continue to assess those. So easy mistake to make, especially in a skill that we don't do super frequently in the field. And usually they're in high stress situations. So make sure you know your equipment, make sure you're taking your time and training with it so that you're ready to use it safely when your patient needs it. Yeah. So now the patient has huge swollen calf. We're worried about compartment syndrome. What do you guys do? How do you jump into action there? Yeah, so we actually had um, our orthopedic surgeons at the bedside. Uh, As soon as I was concerned about compartment syndrome, they came and assessed him. Again, with the removal of the IO, his symptoms improved uh, significantly. And so our suspicion for worsening compartment syndrome decreased, and we just uh, observed him doing neurovascular checks Q1 hour in the ICU until his symptoms resolved, and we felt confident that compartment syndrome did not, in fact, develop. So he was just able to reabsorb all that blood product and fluid and... didn't create any further surgical issues. Certainly not instantly. It took a long time for his uh, (laughs) calf to become less swollen, but the compartment didn't increase in pressure, uh, and we didn't have to do fasciotomies, which is a relief to the patient, I'm sure. 
I'm sure, maybe not so much to you. Right? <laughs> well, it's always, <laughs> you know, we like to operate, but not if it's not necessary. Absolutely. And so if for a provider in the field, they recognize in route that they've potentially done this, aside from immediately stopping the infusion, perhaps removing it, what would you recommend doing? I think just continuing neuro and vascular checks on those patients and the things that we talk about, symptoms that we look for when we're concerned about compartment syndrome are like the six P's, right? So pain, pain out of proportion, paresthesias or numbness of the leg, paralysis, which is loss of movement in that limb. That's typically a late finding. Pallor or paleness of that leg, poikilothermia, coolness of the leg. So symptoms that would be concerning for neuro or vascular compromise of of the extremity. And so it sounds like this patient was pretty severely injured, and when their primary complaint is the pain from the site at the IO, that's a pretty good sign, right? Yeah. Swelling, hardness, redness, or pallor. Um, overall, it sounds like this didn't create a huge detriment to the patient's outcome. How'd the patient do overall? He did great, actually. Um, I think one of the things that we were fortunate was that he didn't have a brain injury. He wasn't intubated. He was able to communicate with us very clearly about the onset of his symptoms, But, you know, if this patient had been intubated and couldn't tell us that his symptoms had changed in route, and if he couldn't have participated in a physical exam, this is certainly something that could easily have been missed. Yeah, continue to just overlook and continue to put fluid in there because if he can't tell us, it can be hard to identify that. Absolutely. Caps can be a little bit of swelling, especially from a major accident like this. Right, and we're very distracted by all his other injuries, and it could easily be overlooked. So any other pearls when we're thinking about using the IO as a tool or monitoring that in route of how we can avoid this in future patients and make sure that we're providing the best care we can to some of these most sick and injured people? Yeah, I mean, I think the IO is very valuable, especially for folks in rural places um, where IV access may be difficult to obtain. Patients hypovolemic, could be hypotensive. In a situation where there have, you know, there's a prolonged extrication, IV access can be very difficult. The IO is a super valuable tool, and it's life-saving in the field. I think it's important with all procedures, whether it's uh, splinting or reduction or central lines or IOs, to constantly reevaluate your site, reevaluate flush, draw back, make sure that you are continue to be in the right space, and just monitoring carefully. Yeah, I think that's really good feedback, and I, it just reminds me of a call that I ran many, many years ago. It was a cardiac arrest, young man, late 30s. I was really preoccupied with his airway, trying to clear vomitus and alcohol and all the nastiness that was there. There was a ferret running around in this apartment. There was so many distractions, and I had to have my EMT partner, who technically wasn't supposed to be starting the IO by our protocols, start it for me under my supervision, which was maybe a little lacking. We realized pretty quickly it was not a good IO. It went into the wrong spot, So, and I had another partner do it. Still bad. So at this point, we're halfway to the hospital, actually going to Swedish hospital, and we had no meds on board at this point. We were continuing to do CPR. We knew that we were trying to do everything we could, but we couldn't get other access, and I was so busy with the airway trying to keep that open that I couldn't do that. And so the distractions are super easy, but there's no excuse to not continue to monitor that and make sure that you're doing everything you can to make sure you're not causing harm. Yeah, and I think practicing. Practice, practice, practice. And You know, we do a lot of procedures in the ED. As a matter of fact, last night we had a patient who had an emergent surgical airway. And, you know, you have to practice, be mentally and physically prepared to get the procedure done when it's, uh, you know, like a life-threatening situation. So practice, being aware, running it through your, running it through 
the procedure in your mind again and again so that you're prepared when the time comes. You don't have, you don't have to think about it too much. Yep. Talk to your training coordinator. Go to your training center. Pull out the equipment. Pull out the fake bone. Practice in the humerus. Practice in the tibia. Practice wherever you're allowed to do it and make sure you're feeling confident in that. Have you seen more humeral IOs? We're seeing a little bit more. Definitely some of the agencies in the Denver metro area are, are moving that way. And it's a newer thing. They've done a lot of training, so people are feeling more comfortable with that because yeah. it's fresh in their mind. Right. But I think across the country, it's still hit or miss. And generally, the humerus is not the most commonly used site. Yeah. But I don't know the statistics on that. Yeah, I think the most recent data is suggesting that flow rates are higher in the humerus and that the accuracy for first and second time um, you know, insertion is just as high, if not higher, for the tibia, than the tibia. So I'm kind of going to do a little, kind of look around and see if we're seeing more of those humoral IOs come in. Yeah, we might have to follow up and, and get a little report back on this one, because I do recall within the last few months, we had one come in that was just in the joint. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. Patient was, I think, a cardiac arrest or completely unresponsive, uh, you know, GCS of yeah. three, but... So the joint infusion of epinephrine wasn't helpful. It didn't work. Shocker, right? <laughs> yeah. So certainly a valuable, valuable tool to have in the toolbox. Absolutely. But like all of our tools and toys, we better be very, very well versed in them. Yeah. Things can go wrong. Yes. With all, with all of even the simplest things, with right? All things. Even just a simple IV or That's right. bandaging. So That's right. before we end this little, little jaunt down case study lane, any final thoughts? Only that we appreciate our EMS providers, and we're glad to take care of the patients that they bring in. The vast majority of the time, the care is excellent, and we're just grateful that patients make it to us so that we can help them out. But again, we look forward to working with our uh, EMS crews. And always happy to review cases and make sure that we're all providing the best care we can, right? This is a partnership that from the roadside all the way to patients being discharged home, we're a team working together. So. Uh, Absolutely. Hopefully this isn't seen as criticism, but as a learning opportunity. No, I'm uh, I'm very fortunate to be working at a high-level trauma center like Swedish. I have all the resources. I have a lot of people and equipment at my disposal, and I can only imagine what it would be like in the field. And I'm grateful I don't have to do that part because it, <laughs> my, my job is real easy in comparison. Fortunately, we like it in the field. <laughs> I don't know why. It's harder, it's crazier, but it's it's a ton of fun. So Good. I'm glad there's someone who's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Kwan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this case. This is such a great learning opportunity. My pleasure, Jordan. Thanks so much. Bye. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Health One Continental Division and Swedish Medical Center for their financial contributions to the EMM. Donations from them and listeners like you make it possible for us to fulfill our mission of producing and spreading free medical education to the masses. If you enjoy our show, please consider making a one-time or reoccurring donation to help cover our operational costs and keep the EMM awesome. Click on the link in our show notes to make a donation. Thank you for listening. <music>